Chapter One, Part One of Autobiography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Gilbert. Autobiography by John Stuart Mill. Chapter One, Part One, Childhood and Early Education. It seems proper that I should prefix to the following biographical sketch some mention of the reasons which have made me think it desirable that I should leave behind me such a memorial of so uneventful a life as mine. I do not for a moment imagine that any part of what I have to relate can be interesting to the public as a narrative, or as being connected with myself but i have thought that in an age in which education and its improvements are the subject of more if not of profounder study than at any former period of english history it may be useful that there should be some record of an education which was unusual and remarkable and which whatever else it may have done has proved how much more than is commonly supposed may be taught, and well taught, in those early years which, in the common modes of what is called instruction, are little better than wasted. It has also seemed to me that in an age of transition in opinions there may be somewhat both of interest and of benefit in noting the successive phases of my mind, which was always pressing forward, equally ready to learn and to unlearn either from its own thoughts or from those of others but a motive which weighs more with me than either of these is a desire to make acknowledgment of the debts which my intellectual and moral development owes to other persons some of them of recognized eminence others less well known than they deserve to be and the one to whom most of all is due one whom the world had no opportunity of knowing. The reader whom these things do not interest has only himself to blame if he reads further, and I do not desire any other indulgence from him than that of bearing in mind that for him these pages were not written. I was born in London on the 20th of May, 1806, and was the eldest son of James Mill, the author of The History of British India, my father, the son of a petty tradesman and, I believe, small farmer, at Northwater Bridge, in the county of Angus, was, when a boy, recommended by his abilities to the notice of Sir John Stuart of Fettercairn, one of the barons of the Exchequer in Scotland, and was, in consequence, sent to the University of Edinburgh, at the expense of a fund established by Lady Jane Stuart the wife of Sir John Stuart, and some other ladies for educating young men for the Scottish Church. He there went through the usual course of study, and was licensed as a preacher, but never following the profession, having satisfied himself that he could not believe the doctrine of that or any other church. For a few years he was a private tutor in various families in Scotland, among others that of the Marquis of Tweeddale but ended by taking up his residence in London. He devoted himself to authorship, 
nor had he any other means of support until 1819, when he obtained an appointment in the India House. In this period of my father's life, there are two things which it is very impossible not to be struck with, one of them, unfortunately, a very common circumstance, the other a most uncommon one. The first is that in his position, with no resources but the precarious one of writing in periodicals, he married and had a large family, conduct that which nothing could be more opposed, both as a matter of good sense and of duty, to the opinions which, at least at a later period of his life, he strenuously upheld. The other circumstance is the extraordinary energy which was required to lead the life he led, with the disadvantages under which he laboured from the first, and with those which he wrought upon himself by his marriage. It would have been no small thing had he done no more than to support himself and his family during so many years of writing, without ever being in debt or in any pecuniary difficulty holding as he did opinions both in politics and in religion which are more odious to all persons of influence and to the common run of prosperous englishmen in that generation than either before or since and being not only a man whom nothing would have induced to write against his convictions but only who invariably threw into everything he wrote as much of his convictions as he thought the circumstances would in any way permit. Being, it must also be said, one who never did anything negligently, never undertook any task, literary or other, on which he did not conscientiously bestow all the labor necessary for performing it adequately. But he, with these burdens on him, planned, commenced, and completed the history of India, and this in the course of a short ten years, a shorter time than has been occupied, even by writers who had no other employment, in the production of almost any other historical work of equal bulk, and of anything approaching to the same amount of reading and research. And to this is to be added, that during the whole period, a considerable part of almost every day was employed in the instruction of his children, in the case of one of whom, myself, he exerted an amount of labor, care, and perseverance, rarely, if ever, employed for a similar purpose, in endeavoring to give, according to his own conception, the highest order of intellectual education. A man who, in his own practice, so vigorously acted up to the principles of losing no time, was likely to adhere to the same rule in the instruction of his pupil. I have no remembrance of the time when I began to learn Greek. I have been told that it was when I was three years old. My earliest recollection on the subject is that of committing to memory what my father termed vocables, being lists of common Greek words and their significance in English, which he wrote out for me on cards of grammar until some years later I learnt no more than the inflections of the nouns and verbs, but, after a course of vocables, proceeded at once to translation, and I faintly remember going through Aesop's fables. The first Greek book which I read, the Anabasis, which I remember better, was the second. 
I learned no Latin until my eighth year. At that time I had read, under my father's tuition, a number of Greek prose authors, among whom I remember the whole of Herodotus and of Xenophon's Cyropedia and Memorials of Socrates, some of the lives of the philosophers by Diogenes Laertes, part of Lucan, and Isocrates ad Domenicum and ad Nicolium. I also read in 1813 the first six dialogues in the common arrangement of Plato, from the Euthyphron to the Theocritus inclusive, which last dialogue I ventured to think would have been better omitted, as it was totally impossible I should understand it. But my father, in all his teaching, demanded of me not only the utmost that I could do, but much that I could by no possibility have done. What he was himself willing to undergo, for the sake of my instruction, may be judged from the fact that I went through the whole process of preparing my Greek lessons in the same room and at the same table at which he was writing. And as in those days Greek and English lexicons were not, and I could make no more use of a Greek and Latin lexicon than could be made without having yet begun to learn Latin, I was forced to have recourse to him for the meaning of every word which I did not know. This incessant interruption he, one of the most impatient of men, submitted to, and wrote under that interruption several volumes of his history and all else that he had to write during those years. The only thing besides Greek that I learnt as a lesson in this part of my childhood was arithmetic. This also my father taught me. It was the task of the evenings, and I well remember its disagreeableness but the lessons were only a part of the daily instruction I received. Much of it consisted in the books I read by myself and my father's discourses to me, chiefly during our walks. From 1810 to the end of 1813 we were living in Newington Green, then an almost rustic neighborhood. My father's health required considerable and constant exercise, and he walked habitually before breakfast, generally in the green lanes towards Hornsey. In these walks I always accompanied him, and with my earliest recollections of green fields and wild flowers is mingled that of the account I gave him daily of what I had read the day before. To the best of my remembrance, this was a voluntary rather than a prescribed exercise. I made notes on slips of paper while reading, and from these, in the morning walks, I told the story to him, for the books were chiefly histories, of which I read in this manner a great number. Robinson's histories, Hume, Gibbon, but my greatest delight, then and for long afterward, was Watson's Philip the Second and Third, the heroic defense of the Knights of Malta against the Turks, and of the revolted provinces of the Netherlands against Spain, excited in me an intense and lasting interest. Next to Watson, my favorite historical reading was Brooke's History of Rome, of Greece I had seen at that time no regular history except school abridgments and the last two or three volumes of a translation of Rollins' ancient history, beginning with Philip of Macedon. But I read with great delight Langhorne's translation of Plutarch in English history, begone the time at which Hume leaves off. I remember reading Burnett's history of his own time, 
though I cared little for anything in it except the wars and battles, and the historical part of the annual register, from the beginning to about 1788, were the volumes my father borrowed for me from Mr. Bentham left off. I felt a lively interest in Frederick of Prussia during his difficulties, and in Paoli, the Corsican patriot. But when I came to the American War, I took my part like a child as I was, until set right by my father, on the wrong side, because it was called the English side. In these frequent talks about the books I read, he used as opportunity offered to give me explanations and ideas respecting civilization, government, morality, which he required me afterward to restate to him in my own words and he also made me read and give him a verbal account of many books which would not have interested me sufficiently to induce me to read them of myself among others miller's historical view of the english government a book of great merit for its time and which he highly valued mosheim's ecclesiastical history mccree's life of john knox and even sewell and rutty's histories of the quakers he was fond of putting into my hands books which exhibited men of energy and resource in unusual circumstances struggling against difficulties and overcoming them of which works i remember beaver's african memoranda and collins account of the first settlement of new south wales two books which i never wearied of reading were anson's voyages so delightful to most young persons, and a collection, Hawksworth's, I believe, of Voyages Round the World, in four volumes, beginning with Drake and ending with Cook, in Bougainville, of children's books, any more than of playthings, I had scantly any except an occasional gift from a relation or acquaintance among those I had. Robinson Crusoe was preeminent, and continued to delight me through all my boyhood, it was no part, however, of my father's system to exclude books of amusement, though he allowed them very sparingly. Of such books he possessed at that time next to none, but he borrowed several for me. Those which I remember are the Arabian Nights, Gazzotti's Arabian Tales, Don Quixote, Miss Edgeworth's Popular Tales, and a book of some reputation in its way, Brooks, Fool of Quality. In my eighth year I commenced learning Latin, in conjunction with a younger sister, to whom I taught it as I went on, and who afterward repeated the lessons to my father. From this time other sisters and brothers being successively added as pupils, a considerable part of my day's work consisted of this preparatory teaching. It was a part which I greatly disliked, the more so as I was held responsible for the lessons of my pupils, in almost as full a sense as for my own. I, however, derived from this discipline the great advantage of learning more thoroughly and retaining more lastingly the things which I was set to teach. Perhaps, too, the practice it afforded in explaining difficulties to others may even at that age have been useful. In other respects, the experience of my boyhood is not favorable to the plan of teaching children by means of one another. The teaching, I am sure, is very inefficient as teaching, and I well know that the relation between the teacher 
and taught is not a good moral discipline to either i went in this manner through the latin grammar and a considerable part of cornelius nepos and caesar's commentaries but afterward added to the superintendence of these lessons much longer ones of my own in the same year in which i began latin i made my first commencement in the greek poets with the iliad after i had made some progress in this my father put pope's translation into my hands it was the first english verse i had cared to read and it became one of the books in which for many years i most delighted i think i must have read it from twenty to thirty times through i should not have thought it worth while to mention a taste apparently so natural to boyhood if i had not as i think observed that the keen enjoyment of this brilliant specimen of narrative and versification is not so universal with boys as i should have expected both a priori and from my individual experience soon after this time i commenced euclid and somewhat later algebra still under my father's tuition from my eighth to my twelfth year the latin books which i remember reading were the brocolics of virgil and the first six books of the aeneid all horus except the epochs the fables of phaedrus the first five books of Livy, to which my love of the subject i voluntarily added in my spare hours of leisure the remainder of the first decade all salused a considerable part of ovid's metamorphosis some plays of terence two or three books of lucretius several of the orations of cicero and of his writings on oratory also his letters to atticus my father taking the trouble to translate to me from the french the historical explanations in migaud's notes in greek i read the iliad and odyssey through one or two plays of sophocles euripides and aristophanes though by these i profited little all felicities the hellenics of xenophon a great part of demosthenes eschthenes and lysias theocritus anacron part of the anthology a little of dionysus several books of polybus and lastly aristotle's rhetoric which as the first expressly scientific treatise on any moral or psychological subject which i had read and containing many of the best observations of the ancients on human nature and life my father made me study with particular care and throw the matter of it into syntoptic tables during the same years i learnt elementary geometry and algebra thoroughly and differential calculus and other portions of the higher mathematics far from thoroughly for my father not having kept up this part of his early acquired knowledge could not spare time to qualify himself for removing my difficulties and left me to deal with them with little other aid than that of books while i was continually incurring his displeasure by my inability to solve difficult problems for which he did not see that i had not the necessary previous knowledge as to my private reading i can only speak of what i remember history continued to be my strongest predilection and most of all ancient history mitford's greece i read continually my father had put me on my guard against the tory prejudices of this writer and his perversions of fact for the whitewashing of despots and blackening of popular institutions these points he discoursed on exemplifying them from the greek orators and historians with such effect that in reading mitford my sympathies were always on the contrary side to those of the author and i could to some extent have argued the point against him 
yet this did not diminish the ever new pleasure with which i read the book roman history both in my old favorite hook and in ferguson continued to delight me a book which in spite of what is called the dryness of its style i took great pleasure in was the ancient universal history through the increasing reading of which i had my head full of historical details concerning the obscurest ancient people while about modern history except detached passages such as the dutch war of independence i knew and cared comparatively little a voluntary exercise to which throughout my boyhood i was much addicted was what i called writing histories i successfully composed a roman history picked out of hook and an abridgment for the ancient universal history a history of holland from my favorite watson and from my anonymous compilation and in my eleventh and twelfth year i occupied myself with writing what i flattered myself was something serious this was no less than a history of the roman government compiled with the assistance of hook from livy and dionysus of which i wrote as much as would have made an octavo volume extending to the epoch of the lucian laws it was in fact the account of the struggles between the patricians and the plebeians which now engrossed all the interest in my mind which i had previously felt in the mere wars of the conquest of the romans i discussed all the constitutional points as they arose though quite ignorant of nibor's researches i by such lights as my father had given me vindicated the agrarian laws on the evidence of livy and upheld to the best of my ability the roman democratic party a few years later in my contempt of my childhood efforts i destroyed all these papers not then anticipating that i could ever feel any curiosity about my first attempts at writing and reasoning my father encouraged me in this useful amusement though as i think judiciously he never asked to see what i wrote so that i did not feel that in writing it i was accountable to any one nor had the chilling sensation of being under a critical eye but though these exercises in history were never quite compulsory lessons there was another kind of composition which was so namely writing verses and it was one of the most disagreeable of my tasks greek and latin verses i did not write nor learnt the prosody of those languages my father thinking this not worth the time it required contented himself with making me read aloud to him and correcting false quantities i never composed at all in greek even in prose and but a little in latin not that my father could be indifferent to the value of this practice in giving a thorough knowledge of these languages but because there really was not time for it the verses i was required to write were english when i first read pope's homer i ambitiously attempted to compose something of the same kind and achieved as much as one book of a continuation of the iliad there probably the spontaneous promptings of my potential ambition which have stopped but the exercise begun from choice was continued by command conformably to my father's usual practice of explaining to me as far as possible the reasons for what he required me to do he gave me for this as i well remember two reasons highly characteristic of him one was that some things could be expressed better 
and more forcibly in verse than in prose. This, he said, was a real advantage. The other was that people in general attached more value to verse than it deserved, and the power of writing it was, on this account, worth acquiring. He generally left me to choose my own subjects, which, as far as I remember, were mostly addresses to some mythological personage or allegorical abstraction. But he made me translate into English verse many of Horace's shorter poems. I also remember his giving me Thompson's Winter to read, and afterwards making me attempt, without book, to write something myself on the same subject. The verses I wrote were, of course, the most merest rubbish, nor did I ever attain any facility of versification, but the practice may have been useful in making it easier for me, at a later period, to acquire readiness of expression. Begin footnote. In a subsequent stage of boyhood, when these exercises had ceased to be compulsory, like most youthful writers, I wrote tragedies, under the inspiration not so much of Shakespeare as of Joanna Bailey, whose Constantine Paleologus, in particular, appeared to me one of the most glorious of human compositions. I still think it is one of the best dramas of the last two centuries. End footnote. I had read up to this time very little English poetry. Shakespeare my father had put into my hands chiefly for the sake of the historical plays, from which, however, I went on to the others. My father never was a great admirer of Shakespeare, the English idolatry of whom he used to attack with some severity. He cared little for any English poetry except Milton, for whom he had the highest admiration. Goldsmith, Burns, and Gray's Bard, which he preferred to his elegy. Perhaps I may add Cowper and Beatty. He had some value for Spencer, and I remember his reading to me, unlike his usual practice of making me read to him, the first book of the Fairy Queen. But I took little pleasure in it. The poetry of the present century he saw scarcely any merit in, and I hardly became acquainted with any of it until I was grown up to manhood, except the metrical romances of Walter Scott, which I read at his recommendation, and was intensely delighted with, as I always was with animated narrative. Dryden's poems were among my father's books, and many of these he made me read, but I never cared for any of them except Alexander's Feast, which, as well as many of the songs in Walter Scott, I used to sing internally to a music of my own. To some of the latter, indeed, I went so far as to compose airs, which I still remember. Cowper's short poems I read with some pleasure, but never got far into the longer ones, and nothing in the two volumes interested me like the prose account of his three hairs. In my thirteenth year I met with Campbell's poems, among which Lochiel, Homelander, The Exile of Aaron, and some others, gave me sensations I had never before experienced from poetry. Here, too, I made nothing of the longer poems, except the striking openness of Gertrude of Wyoming, which long kept its place in my feelings as the perfection of pathos. During this part of my childhood, one of my greatest amusements was experimental science, in the theoretical, however, not the practical, sense of the word, not trying experiments, a kind of discipline which I have often regretted not having had, 
nor even seeing, but merely reading about them. I never remember being so wrapped up in any book as I was in Joyce's scientific dialogues, and I was rather recalcitrant to my father's criticism of the bad reasoning respecting the first principles of physics, which abounds in the early part of that work. I devoured treatises on chemistry, especially that of my father's early friend and schoolfellow, Dr. Thompson, for years before I attended a lecture or saw an experiment. From about the age of twelve I entered into another and more advanced stage in my course of instruction, in which the main object was no longer the aids and appliances of thought, but the thoughts themselves. This commenced with logic, in which I began at once with the organon, and read it to the analytics inclusive, but profited little by the posterior analytics, which belonged to a branch of speculation I was not yet ripe for. Contemporaneously with the organon, my father made me read the whole or parts of several of the Latin treatises on the scholastic logic, giving each day to him, in our walks, a minute account of what I had read, and answering his numerous and most searching questions. After this I went in a similar manner through the computative logica of Hobbes, a work of a much higher order of thought than the books of the school logisticians, and which he estimated very highly, on my own opinion beyond its merits, great as they are. It was his invariable practice, whatsoever studies he extracted from me, to make me as far as possible understand the field, the utility of them, and this he deemed particularly fitting in the case of the syllogistic logic, the usefulness of which had been impugned by many writers of authority. I well remember how, and in what particular walk, to the neighborhood of Bagshot Heath, where we were on a visit to his old friend Mr. Wallace, then one of the mathematical professors at Sandhurst. He first attempted by questions to make me think on the subject, and frame some conception of what constituted the utility of the syllogistic logic. And when I had failed in this, make me understand it by explanations. The explanations did not make the matter at all clear to me at the time, but they were not therefore useless. They remained as a nucleus for my observations and reflections, to crystallize upon, the import of his general remarks being interpreted to me by the particular instances which came under my notice afterward. My own consciousness and experience ultimately led me to appreciate quite as highly as he did the value of an early practical familiarity with the school logic. I know of nothing in my education to which I think myself more indebted for whatever capacity of thinking I have attained. The first intellectual operations in which I arrived at any proficiency was dissecting a bad argument and finding in what part the fallacy lies and though whatever capacity of this sort I attained was due to the fact it was an intellectual exercise in which I was most perseveredly drilled by my father, yet it is also true that the school logic and the mental habits acquired in studying it were among the principal instruments of this drilling. I am persuaded that nothing in modern education tends so much when properly used to form exact thinkers, 
who attach a precise meaning to words and propositions and are not imposed upon by vague loose or ambiguous terms the boasted influence of mathematical studies is nothing to it for in mathematical processes none of the real difficulties of correct ratiocination occur it is also a study particularly adopted to an early stage in the education of philosophical students since it does not presuppose the slow process of acquiring by experience and reflection valuable thoughts of their own they may become capable of disentangling the intricacies of confused and self-contradictory thought before their own thinking facilities are much advanced a power which for want of some such discipline many otherwise able men altogether lack and when they have to answer opponents only endeavors by which arguments as they can command to support the opposite conclusion scarcely ever attempting to confute the reasonings of their antagonists and therefore at the utmost leaving the question as far as it depends on argument a balanced one end of chapter one childhood and early education part one recording by gary gilbert wheaton illinois Chapter 1, Part 2, Autobiography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Gilbert. Autobiography by John Stuart Mill. Chapter 1, Part 2, Childhood and Early Education. During this time the Latin and Greek books which I continued to read with my father were chiefly such as were worth studying, not for the language merely, but also for the thoughts. This included much of the orators, and especially Demosthenes, some of whose principal orations I read several times over and wrote out, by way of exercise, a full analysis of them. My father's comments on these orations when I read them to him, were very instructive to me. He not only drew my attention to the insight they afforded into Athenian institutions, and the principles of legislation and government which they often illustrated, but pointed out the skill and art of the orator, how everything important to his purpose was said at the exact moment when he had brought the minds of his audience into the state most fitted to receive it, how he made steel into their minds gradually and by insinuation thoughts which if expressed in a more direct manner would have roused their opposition most of these reflections were beyond my capacity of full comprehension at the time but they left seed behind which germinated in due season at this time i also read the whole of tacitus juvenal and quintilian the latter, owing to his obscure style and to the scholastic details of which many parts of his treatise are made up, is little read and seldom sufficiently appreciated. His book is a kind of encyclopedia of the thoughts of the ancients on the whole field of education and culture, and I have retained through life many valuable ideas which I can distinctly trace to my reading of him, even at that early age.
It was at this period that I read, for the first time, some of the most important dialogues of Plato, in particular the Gorgias, the Protagoras, and the Republic. There is no author to whom my father thought himself more indebted for his own mental culture than Plato, or whom he more frequently recommended to young students. I can bear similar testimony in regard to myself. The Socratic method, of which the Platonic dialogues are the chief example, is unsurpassed as a discipline for correcting the errors and clearing up the confusions incident to the intellectus sibi permissimus, the understanding which has made up all the bundles of associations under the guidance of popular phraseology. The close searching elenchusis, by which the man of vague generalities is constrained either to express his meaning to himself in definite terms or to confess that he does not know what he is talking about the perpetual testing of all general statements by particular instances the siege in form which is laid to the meaning of large abstract terms by fixing upon some still larger class name which includes that and more and dividing down to the thing sought marked out its limits and definition by a series of accurately drawn distinctions between it and each of the cognate objects which are successively parted off from it all this as an education for precise thinking is inestimable and all this even at that age took such hold of me that it became part of my own mind i have felt ever since that the title of platonist belongs by far better right to those who have been nourished in and have endeavoured to practise plato's mode of investigation than to those who are distinguished only by the adoption of certain dogmatical conclusions drawn mostly from the least intelligible of his works and which the character of his mind and writings makes it uncertain whether he himself regarded as anything more than poetic fancies or philosophic conjectures. In going through Plato and Demosthenes, since I could now read these authors, as far as the language was concerned, with perfect ease, I was not required to construe them sentence by sentence, but to read them aloud to my father, answering questions when he asked. But the particular attention which he paid to elocution, in which his own excellence was remarkable, made this reading aloud to him a most painful task. Of all things which he required me to do, there was none which I did so consistently ill, or in which he so perpetually lost his temper with me. He had thought much on the principles of the art of reading, especially the most neglected part of it, the inflections of the voice, or modulation, as writers on elocution call it, in contrast with articulation on the one side and expression on the other and had reduced it to rules grounded on the logical analysis of a sentence these rules he strongly impressed upon me and took me severely to task for every violation of them but i even then remarked though i did not venture to make the remark to him that though he reproached me when i read something ill and told me how i ought to have read it he never, by reading it himself, showed me how it ought to be read. 
a defect running through his otherwise admirable modes of instruction as it did through all his modes of thought was that of trusting too much to the intelligibleness of the abstract when not embodied in the concrete it was at a much later period of my youth when practising elocution by myself or with companions of my own age that i for the first time understood the object of these rules and saw the psychological grounds of them at that time i and others followed out the subject into its ramifications and could have composed a very useful treatise grounded on my father's principles he himself left those principles and rules unwritten i regret that when my mind was full of the subject from systematic practice i did not put them and our improvements of them into a formal shape a book which contributed largely to my education in the best sense of the term was my father's history of india it was published in the beginning of eighteen eighteen during the year previous while it was passing through the press i used to read the proof-sheets to him or rather i read the manuscripts to him while he corrected the proofs the number of new ideas which i received from this remarkable book and the impulse and stimulus as well as guidance given to my thoughts by its criticism and disquisitions on society and civilization in the hindu part or the institutions and the acts of government in the english part made my early familiarity with it eminently useful to my subsequent progress and though i can perceive deficiencies in it now as compared with a perfect standard i still think it if not the most one of the most instructive histories ever written and one of the books from which most benefit may be derived by a mind in the course of making up its opinions the preface among the most characteristic of my father's writings as well as the richness in materials of thought gives a picture which may be entirely depended on of the sentiments and expectations with which he wrote the history saturated as the book is with the opinions and modes of judgment of a democratic radicalism then regarded as extreme and treating with a severity at that time most unusual the english constitution the english law and all parties and classes who possessed any considerable influence in the country he may have expected reputation but certainly not advancement in life from its publication nor could he have supposed that it would raise up anything but enemies for him in powerful quarters least of all could he have expected favour from the east india company to whose commercial privileges he was unqualifiedly hostile and on the acts of whose government he had made so many severe comments though in various parts of his book he bore a testimony to their favour which he felt to be their just due namely that no government had on the whole given so much proof to the extent of its lights of good intention toward its subjects and that if the acts of any other government had the light of publicity as completely let in upon them they would in all probability still less bear scrutiny on learning however in the spring of eighteen nineteen about a year after the publication of the history that the east india directors desired to strengthen the part of their home establishment 
which was employed in carrying out the correspondence with India, my father declared himself a candidate for that employment, and, to the credit of the directors, successfully. He was appointed one of the assistants of the examiner of India correspondence, officers whose duty it was to prepare drafts of dispatches to India, for consideration by the directors, in the principal departments of administration, in this office, and in that of examiner which he subsequently attained, the influence which his talents, his reputation, and his decisions of character gave him, with superiors who readily desired the good government of India, enabled him to a great extent to throw into his drafts of dispatches, and to carry through the ordeal of the court of directors and board of control, without having their force much weakened, his real opinions on Indian subjects. In his history he had set forth, for the first time, many of the true principles of Indian administration, and his dispatches, following his history, did more than had ever been done before to promote the improvement of India, and teach Indian officials to understand their business. If a selection of them were published, they would, I am convinced, place his character as a practical statesman fully on a level with his eminence as a speculative writer. This new employment of his time caused no relaxation in his attention to my education. It was in this same year, 1819, that he took me through a complete course of political economy. His loved and intimate friend, Ricardo, had shortly before published the book which formed so great an epoch in political economy, a book which would never have been published or written but for the entreaty and strong encouragement of my father. For Ricardo, the most modest of men, though firmly convinced of the truth of his doctrines, deemed himself so little capable of doing them justice in exposition and expression that he shrank from the idea of publicity. The same friendly encouragement induced Ricardo, a year or two later, to become a member of the House of Commons, where, during the remaining years of his life, unhappily cut short in the full vigor of his intellect, he rendered so much service to his and my father's opinions, both on political economy and on other subjects. Though Ricardo's great work was already in print, no didactic treatise embodying its doctrine in a manner fit for learners had yet appeared. My father, therefore, commenced instructing me in the science by a sort of lectures, which he delivered to me in our walks. He expounded each day a portion of the subject, and I gave him next day a written account of it, which he made me rewrite over and over again until it was clear, precise, and tolerably complete. In this manner I went through the whole extent of the science, and the written outline of it which resulted from my daily compte rindu served him afterwards as notes from which to write his elements of political economy. After this I read Ricardo, giving my account daily of what I read, and discussing, in the best manner I could, the collateral points which offered themselves in our progress. On money, as the most intricate part of the subject, he made me read in all the same manner Ricardo's admirable pamphlets, written during what was called the bullion 
controversy. To these succeeded Adam Smith, and in this reading it was one of my father's main objects to make me apply to Smith's more superficial view of political economy, the superior lights of Ricardo, and detect what was fallacious in Smith's arguments, or erroneous in any of his conclusions. Such a mode of instruction was exceedingly calculated to form a thinker, but it required to be worked by a thinker as close and vigorous as my father. The path was a thorny one even to him, and I am sure it was so to me. Notwithstanding the strong interest I took in the subject, he was often, and much beyond reason, provoked by my failure in cases where success could not have been expected, but in the main his method was right, and it succeeded. I do not believe that any scientific teaching ever was more thorough, or better fitted for training the facilities, than the mode in which logic and political economy were taught to me by my father, striving even in an exaggerated degree everything for myself, he gave his explanations not before, but after I had felt the full force of the difficulties, and not only gave me an accurate knowledge of these two great subjects, as far as they were then understood, but made me a thinker on both. I thought for myself almost from the first, and occasionally thought differently from him, though for a long time only on minor points. In making his opinion the ultimate standard, at a later period, I even occasionally convinced him, and altered his opinion on some points of detail, which I state to his honor, not to my own. It at once exemplified his perfect candor, and the real worth of his method of teaching. At this point concluded what can properly be called my lessons. When I was about fourteen I left England, and for more than a year, and after my return, though my studies went on under my father's general direction, he was no longer my schoolmaster. I shall therefore pause here and turn back to matters of a more general nature, connected with the part of my life and education included in the preceding reminiscences. In the course of instruction which I have partly retracted, the point most superficially apparent is the great effort to give during the years of childhood an amount of knowledge in what are considered the highest branches of education, which is seldom acquired, if acquired at all, until the age of manhood. The result of this experiment shows the ease with which this may be done, and places in a strong light the wretched waste of so many precious years we are spent in acquiring the modicum of Latin and Greek commonly taught to schoolboys, a waste which has led so many educational reformers to entertain the ill-judged proposal of discarding these languages altogether from general education. If I had been by nature extremely quick of apprehension, or had possessed a very accurate and retentive memory, or were of a remarkably active and energetic character, the trial would not be conclusive. But in all these natural gifts I am rather below than above par. What I could do could assuredly be done by any boy or girl of average capacity and healthy physical constitution, and if I have accomplished anything, I owe it, among other fortunate circumstances, to the fact that through the early training bestowed upon me by my father, I started, I may fairly say, with an advantage of a quarter of a century over my contemporaries. 
There was one cardinal point in this training of which I have already given some indication, and which, more than anything else, was the cause of whatever good it effected. Most boys or youths who have had much knowledge drilled into them have their mental capacities not strengthened, but overlaid by it. They are crammed with mere facts, and with the opinions or phrases of other people, and these are accepted as a substitute for the power to form opinions of their own. And thus, the sons of eminent fathers, who have spared no pains in their education, so often grow up mere parroters of what they have learnt, incapable of using their minds except in the furrows traced for them. Mine, however, was not an education of cram. My father never permitted anything which I learnt to degenerate into a mere exercise of memory. He strove to make the understanding not only go along with every step of the teaching, but, if possible, precede it. Anything which could be found out by thinking, I never was told, until I had exhausted my efforts to find it out for myself. As far as I can trust my remembrance, I acquitted myself very lamely in this department. My recollection of such matters is almost wholly of failures, hardly ever of success. It is true that the failures were often in things in which success in so early a stage of my progress was almost impossible. I remember at some time in my thirteenth year, on my happening to use the word idea, he asked me what an idea was, and expressed some displeasure at my ineffectual efforts to define the word. I recollect also his indignation at my using the common expression that sometimes was true in theory, but required correction in practice, and how, after making me vainly strive to define the word theory, he explained its meaning and showed the fallacy of the vulgar form of speech which I had used, leaving me fully persuaded that in being unable to give a correct definition of theory, and in speaking of it as something which might be at variance with practice, I had shown unparalleled ignorance. In this he seems, and perhaps was, very unreasonable, but I think only in being angry at my failure. A pupil from whom nothing is ever demanded, which he cannot do, never does all he can. One of the evils most liable to attend to any sort of early proficiency, and which often fatally blights its promise, my father most anxiously guarded against. This was self-conceit. He kept me with extreme vigilance, out of the way of hearing myself praised, or of being led to make self-flattering comparisons between myself and others. From his own intercourse with me, I could derive none but a very humble opinion of myself. The standard of comparison he always held up to me was not what other people did, but what a man could and ought to do. He completely succeeded in preserving me from the sort of influences he so much dreaded. I was not at all aware that my attainments were anything unusual at my age. If I accidentally had my attention drawn to the fact that some other boy knew less than myself, which happened less often than might be imagined, I concluded, not that I knew much, but that he for some reason or other knew little, or that his knowledge was of a different kind from mine. My state of mind was not humility, but neither was it arrogance. I never thought of saying to myself, I am, or I can do, so and so. 
I neither estimated myself highly nor lowly. I did not estimate myself at all. If I thought anything about myself, it was that I was rather backward in my studies, since I always found myself so, in comparison with what my father expected of me. I assert this with confidence, though it was not the impression of various persons who saw me in my childhood. They, as I have since found, thought me greatly and disagreeably self-conceited, probably because I was disputatious, and did not scruple to give direct contradictions to things which I heard said. I suppose I acquired this bad habit from having been encouraged in an unusual degree to talk on matters beyond my age, and with grown persons, while I never had inculcated on me the usual respect for them, my father did not correct this ill-breeding and impertinence, probably from not being aware of it, for I was always too much in awe of him to be otherwise than extremely subdued and quiet in his presence. Yet with all this I had no notion of any superiority in myself, and well as it for me that I had not. I remember the very place in Hyde Park where, in my fourteenth year, on the eve of leaving my father's house for a long absence, he told me that I should find, as I got acquainted with new people, that I had been taught many things which youths of my age did not commonly know, and that many persons would be disposed to talk to me of this, and to compliment me on it. What other things he said on this topic I remember very imperfectly, but he wound up by saying that whatever I knew more than others could not be ascribed to any merit in me, but to the very unusual advantage which had fallen to my lot of having a father who was able to teach me, and willing to give me the necessary trouble and time, that it was no matter of praise to me, if I knew more than those who had not had a similar advantage, but the deepest disgrace to me if I did not. I have a distinct remembrance that the suggestion thus for the first time made to me that I knew more than other youths who were considered well-educated, was to me a piece of information to which, as to all other things which my father told me, I gave implicit credence, but which did not at all impress me as a personal matter. I felt no disposition to glorify myself upon the circumstance that there were other persons who did not know what I knew, nor had I ever flattered myself that my acquirements, whatever they might be, were any merit of mine, but now, when my attention was called to the subject, I felt that what my father had said respecting my peculiar advantage was exactly the truth and common sense of the matter, and it fixed my opinion and feeling from that time forward. End of chapter 1. Childhood and Early Education Part 2. Recording by Gary Gilbert, Wheaton, Illinois.